Well, good afternoon, if that's when you're listening to this show. And we're going to talk about child labor today. Child labor here in 2017 means about 152 million children worldwide. That could be a low figure. It may not count an awful lot of uh, domestic workers. Most of those would be girls. Otherwise, it's about 60% of those uh, child laborers are boys. About half of them are children between the ages of 5 and 11. But one of the reasons we wanted to do this show today was because it's Christmas time, which I know might seem kind of paradoxical, but obviously a lot of the gifts that you'll give and get, uh, a lot of the chocolate uh, and other nice things that you might consume uh, is linked to child labor. But also our Christmas traditions and our ideas are linked to child labor. I mean, there's a way in which, obviously, Charles Dickens owns Christmas. But Charles Dickens uh, was a crusader against uh, child labor uh, and someone who, at the age of 12, went to work in a blacking factory because of his father's debt problems. Um so, uh, you know, it, there's a sort of no way to extricate Christmas from the whole question of child labor. And I think also, um, you know, because Christmas, some of our ideas about Christmas were formed by those Victorians. And the Victorians were notoriously schizoid about Christmas, about children, rather. I mean, on the one hand, it really is in some ways the beginning of this exalted idea uh, of what childhood uh, should be. Uh, and it's also a time when uh, the exploitation of children was rampant. There are some reasons for that, and we're going to get right into those. And uh, we'll move from there eventually to the modern picture. And towards the end, we'll talk about one school of thought that says that as bad as child labor looks on paper and looks in person, it may be the lesser of other evils, uh, a, a wide range of evils, at least for some of the children in those conditions. Uh, but that is yet to come. We're going to begin a little bit more uh, with the history of this. And to do that, we have James Schmidt, Associate Professor of History at Northern Illinois University and author of Industrial Violence and uh, the Legal Origins of Child Labor. Uh, James Schmidt, welcome to our conversation. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. So um, we shouldn't probably begin this conversation uh, in the Victorian era. I guess maybe the first thing to say is that for most of human history, children were expected to work uh, to whatever their capacity was. The only difference, I assume, would be in, in what children could be expected to do, given the tools at hand. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that's a kind of broader statement of the fact that through most of human history, most people have been involved in making things in some way or other. You know, it's only with industrialization that you can have this um, kind of division between those who make things and those who don't make things. And um, children, young people, as I usually call them in my work, you know, have been a part of that for a very long time. Um, you know, so that through most of human history, most people have been involved in some kind of agricultural pursuit. So that might have been, you know, fairly simple things like, you know, speaking of Christmas, like a classic shepherd boy, uh, sort of looking after livestock, or, you know, for the longest time, um, very common thing for girls to learn to do very early on was to spin or to look after, um, like, dairy animals, things of that nature. Um, so I think it really... Yeah, it fits in that much longer uh, train of what people did before industrialization. I think you still have to kind of qualify that a little bit, um, you know, because at least in what we think of as, you know, civilization and those periods of time in which there have been urbanization and things like that for the last five or 6,000 years, people who are in elite, you know, families, you know, 
childhood there might be a somewhat different thing. They might still do things, but they're not doing the same thing that, you know, a farmer or a laborer or a craftsman or something like that is doing. Um, so I don't think it's been, you know, absolutely the same across different groups of people. And, you know, there's also been slavery about as long as there's been so-called civilization. And so there are things different, but, but definitely, yeah, children have, and young people uh, have worked in some capacity for as long as there have been people. Right. And so, I mean, another distinction we can make uh, is the distinction between children working as part of some kind of extended family. So we're, you know, we're sheep farmers. So, yeah, you're a shepherd. And the fact that you're eight years old is not that important. Um, And then there's kind of the notion of children working outside the family. You're uh, research indicates that by the end of the American Revolution, there were a lot of children here in this country who were working outside of family context, indentured uh, servants, apprentices, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, and I think I would say at least in some ways uh, before the Revolution, although it's a little different, so what's really the thing before about that period of time is there's plenty of work outside of someone's you know individual family, but often it means that they're just in service you know, to the person down the road, you know, they're working as a foreign laborer, as a domestic servant or an apprentice or something like that. And so, yeah, it's really after the revolution and with the spread, especially of, um, you know, textile industrialization of spinning and weaving in the Northeast, that there's a really broad expansion of not just work outside the home, but I think um, of wage work, you know, outside the home and of people, oftentimes, I don't, I don't think people know this, that in that era, the first wave of that was often young women, girls, uh, more than boys, um, you know, who went to work in your classic, you know, Lowell, Massachusetts um, textile mill while the majority of their family was still on a farm. And they said them, you know, they only worked there for a while and they might have gone back to the countryside uh, when they got married, they got older and got married or something like that. Um, Another very common thing in that era um, was as the whaling industry expanded, there were a lot of boys on whaling ships, mm-hmm. you know, and so they're not only away from home, they're way away from home, so maybe for two or three years at a time. Um, but yeah, that it's particularly in that sort of period bef- between the revolution and uh, the Civil War where that really got started in any meaningful way, I'd say. Mm-hmm. The Industrial Revolution, that was kind of a game changer. And, and suddenly you have, I mean, there's just sort of limits uh, on on toil um, that's carried out with sort of pre-industrial implements. I mean, you can only use a pitchfork for so long and then you just can't do it anymore. Right. Um, whereas these machines that are steam powered or otherwise powered can be operated over long periods of time. The actual physical exertion is a little different. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have children who have jobs like you know, getting out underneath an, a, a moving machine to clear out, you know, fabric debris or something that's uh, coming out of the machine. So you can work them longer hours. You can use more of them. I, I assume some of our ideas about child labor actually being a social evil begin to take shape during that period. Yeah, definitely. Uh, both as a result of the kind of working conditions that, that you are describing um, but I think, especially if we think about that period before the Civil War, and, and that's really when the first child labor laws were in the U.S. and in Britain, too, uh, but especially in the U.S., that's very much tied in the U- U.S. to schooling, I would say, also, it's because uh, the very first child labor laws are combined with, or they actually are compulsory attendance laws, but they're 
done because, you know, these folks see children in factories that they think ought to be in schools. This is mostly in the Northeast. And they think they ought to be in schools because uh, they think that you need an educated citizenry for, um, for a democratic republic. And so, you know, they would go about saying things like, well, these children, these factory children are ignorant, and if you give them the right to grow to vote when they grow up, well, that's going to be a problem. So there's those things um, that are kind of in that mix as well. Um, and it also, I think, has a lot to do with, as you already kind of mentioned, um, with the beginning of, of changing ideas about childhood itself. And, you know, so what are young people supposed to be doing, especially at the earlier ages, you know, that the thing about child labor and child labor reform is that, you know, it was a pretty long project over the course of a couple of centuries. And most of those early laws, like the earliest ones were just about kids under 10, you know, so then it might move up to 12 and, you know, eventually at this sort of marker that we have now is 14 of being a sort of a big cutoff point. And the idea that, well, you know, those kids belong in school, and if they're not in school, they're supposed to be playing, you know, and that is a reflection, really, of what was happening in the families of the middle-class people who were leading the reform movements. Um, and so I think, you know, the things all get bound up together, so part of it is about working conditions, but part of it is about, uh, for reformers, I think, is, you know, what children are not doing if they are in a factory or some other workplace setting. Right. But I, I think the other part of this, this, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the factory itself is a different kind of setting than what we've seen in the past. So we yeah. have, you know, if, if you're uh, uh, involved in, I mean, I mentioned a pitchfork and you could get hurt with a pitchfork. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the, the kinds of injuries that you could sustain in a lot of these pre-industrial settings were somewhat limited. Now you've got children going yeah. underneath a machine that could actually scalp them, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's also things like, you know, I have a number of examples of this in my book of, you know, you have kids who are fascinated by other things, and so they try to play with them. Right. Um, and that does not uh, usually end well. Um, but, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of different kinds of, you know, dangers in a factory. Uh, and it's just, again, like you're intimating, that's not to say that agricultural work is not dangerous, um, but it's not dangerous in the same way. And, you know, I think that, so much of that has to do with the conditions of labor in general in that era, um, you know, where hours are very long and things are kind of built a little bit on the fly, you know, so they're not, and this is obviously pre-OSHA, uh, so there's not a lot of health and safety regulations. There's no health and safety regulations. Um, and yeah, so there's a lot of just sort of constant danger, whereas, you know, I think in agricultural work, there's things that are plenty dangerous um, but they kind of come and go, whereas in a factory it's sort of ever-present. So the last half of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century uh, in, in both Britain and in the U.S. are f just uh, alive with reform ideas. I mean, there's all kinds of reform in the air. There's temperance and there's women's suffrage uh, and there's abolition. And I could just keep going. And one of these things is child labor. Child labor kind of is part of that choir. Um, are there sort of certain tipping points about this or like reasons why? I mean, you just in the same sense that I don't watch children harvest the cocoa that, you know, is going to be in the chocolate bar that I eat. I'm sure most people, you know, in the 1870s, 1880s didn't really see children working in these horrible places. So what what changed the attitudes? Oh, that, that's the big question and the one that historians uh, like to debate all the time. I mean, I guess, 
you know, my answer to that would sort of build on what I would have said before, which is I think part of it has to do with, you know, class and sort of class division and that you have an increasing number of people who are middle class, who live in cities, who are, I guess the, the, the thing that you're saying, it would be my answer, is that they are cut off from things. They have their own understandings of what proper life ought to be, both inside and outside the home. Um, and they have the power um, to make those visions a reality. Uh, so I think that's part of it. I think it's important to understand that, you know, the child labor reform in so many of those things, but child labor reform in particular was mostly led by middle-class people, by professionals, often people who are in the ministry, or you have you know professional women who are involved in um, the settlement house movement, these sort of urban centers for immigrants. Um, and so they're kind of leading it, which is not to say that you know laboring people were not in it. Uh, unions had been opposed to, or to child labor, or at least wanted to regulate it since the antebellum period because they thought it drove down wages. But in, in most cases, they're not, you know, average working people are not sort of clamoring for these things. It's middle class people and professionals. Um, and so for them, I think the fact that they are cut off from it is, in fact, sort of why they're doing it. And, and that sort of social division was much more obvious and prominent by the time you get to the turn of the 20th century because of, you know, urbanization, industrialization. So as a McLuhanist, I feel like there's a media component to everything. Uh, And so particularly something like this. And so, you know, I just got back. I was in a city in in Europe where there was this enormous uh, thing called the Photo Lux uh, exhibition uh, of photography from all over the world. And I was touring these exhibits where these these still photographs uh, of the refugee crisis. And and no matter what I thought, I knew about the refugee crisis going in, watching these photos, which in a way we don't even look at as much as we did 30 years ago when everybody got Life magazine. But it seems to me one of the things that may have turned things around a little bit is the development of photography, the development yep. of the mass dissemination yep. of photography. And I know there's one uh, photographer named Lewis Hine mm-hmm. that you probably want to mention. Yeah, so I, I think Hine is he's not just one of, he's the you know, person who really created these iconic images of child labor. Um, and, but I think you're very right that it's a lot the rise of these mass distribution systems that allowed that to be possible. It would be one thing to be Matthew Brady in the Civil War and take a bunch of photos and they're on display at a place and you have to go there. But the fact that it was so easy to broadcast those to so many different places um, is a really big part of it, I think. It's, you know, photography is not the only thing. There is a real tradition of sort of pen and ink drawings in child labor reform um, that preceded that or went along, I guess it's just went along with it. And I was just thinking when you were doing the opener um, and connecting to Christmas, there's this image that I've used in some of my research that's exactly that imagery of you know, when you sit down to have your Christmas and you have your child's toys. You'll remember they're being made by these child slaves, you know, and that's not a just a modern thing we say now. That imagery was there about 100 years ago. And the thing that I have in mind is sort of a pen and ink drawing. Um, and there's sort of quite a lot of that, too. And so... I would say it's both the photography and it's the means to get it to a lot of people simultaneously. And yeah, you're right that those kind of images are very, um, they're very powerful. Um, 
Yeah, if people are listening and want to seek them out, uh, if you can find them, it's Lewis Hine, H-I-N-E. Mm-hmm. And there, there is one, uh, I'm sitting here in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, there's one of these Western Union boys in Hartford, Connecticut that is, I mean, there's some very chilling ones. I, I don't know. The, the, and you think about the uh, a play like Newsies, uh, which kind of romanticizes and celebrates being a newsboy. But some of these newsboys were very, very little boys who couldn't even make change and things like that. And the whole thing is very uh, disturbing. I, you know, I, I, want, I want to just talk about the, the uh, maybe another, maybe the other turning point, and I assume that would be 1938, where we have the Fair Labor Standards Act. What does that do? Well, it it is the federalization of regulation, and so I think that's what's the turning point about it, is that there had been this long effort, you know, starting in the 19 aughts, the first decade of the 20th century, and, and after that to elevate child labor regulation to the federal level. And so I think to do it at the federal level makes it a national commitment and therefore makes it a lot firmer. I do think, and one of the things that I've tried to do a lot in my research is to say that, well, there was a whole lot of things going on at the state level that sort of laid the groundwork for that. And then that really goes back, like I said, to the antebellum period, but it particularly occurred, you know, from the 1890s onward. And so by the time you get to 1938, there are state laws everywhere that are doing most of what the Fair Labor Standards Act is doing. Uh, but I think a lot of performers felt like those things were not being enforced properly and that they needed federal authority to make that happen. And so there's a story, you know, that occurs before that. As you may know, there's the 1916 Keating-Owen Act, uh, which the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional in 1918. And then there's another attempt and another uh, Supreme Court case. And then there's an attempt in the 1920s uh, to amend the Constitution uh, to give the Congress um, the power to regulate child labor. And that's actually one of those amendments that's still live. You know, it, it could be actually ratified um, still. Um, but that kind of failed. And then, you know, with the New Deal and a, a very different group of people uh, coming to Washington, both in the administration and in Congress, said, yeah, you get to the point where you have federal authority. And, you know, like a lot of things in modern American history, um, federal authority means a lot more to people, you know, than things that are being carried out at the state level. So, yeah, I guess that as a turning point, to me, it would be less what uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act actually does, since its provisions are not dissimilar to state regulations. It's that it's a national, you know, assertion of power. Mm-hmm. All right. So as you were about to find out, it doesn't fix everything. But we want to, first of all, thank James Schmidt, uh, who is associate professor of history at Northern Illinois University and author of Industrial Violence and the Legal Origins of Child Labor. We're going to switch from him. We're not going to a break. I hear music. We're not going to a break right now. Um, we're going to uh, switch from him to uh, Kimberly Melman Orozco, a research scientist and expert in human trafficking. She's the author of several uh, books, including Hidden in Plain Sight, uh, America's Slaves of the New Millennium. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, Kimberly Orozco Melman for a little while. We're going to take a break. We're going to do a little uh, fundraising. Uh, when that happens, I hope that you will appreciate that we are perhaps the only public radio show crazy enough to do a show about child labor during the Christmas season and to believe that it's actually the right thing to do during the Christmas season and and maybe actually support our show as well. And then Kimberly will be back also on the other side of that break. Towards the end of the show, we'll have a conversation involving uh, Kimberly Millman Orozco and Benjamin Powell uh, about whether or not there are ways in which some of the alternatives to child labor in certain situations might actually be worse than what child labor is. But uh, first of all, uh, Kimberly Millman Orozco, research scientist and expert in human trafficking. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm, uh, it's happy, I'm happy to be on the show. So uh, I said at the uh, beginning of the show, 152 million children, by the, probably the most common uh, account worldwide, uh, are still involved in child labor, maybe more than that. Um, I think when people think that, they think about sweatshops in Asia. They maybe think uh, about cocoa farms in uh, Africa. They don't think it's happening in the United States. But it's not as though we've really eradicated this in the United States. What can you tell us about that? Well, I think it is definitely a misconception that child labor has disappeared in industrialized countries like the United States. I think that might be uh, more clandestine than it once was, but it is definitely very pervasive. For example, we do see cases of child labor, child trafficking in domestic servitude type situations. I've personally encountered it in door-to-door sales, um, and kids are often recruited and trafficked into begging rings and peddling rings where they're peddling um, all-purpose cleaners or magazines door-to-door, but very rarely people recognize those as forms of exploitation. Um, But oftentimes we also are remiss and don't recognize all the products that we consume that you mentioned earlier, for example, our textiles, chocolate, Um, Or even in in farms and labor industries here in the United States, agricultural farms um, have been known to exploit child labor as well. Right. So um, for a long time, although Connecticut has very tough child labor laws, uh, even for a a USA state, for a long time, uh, tobacco was a place where you could work at a very uh, young age here in this state. And I gather there are still places where, I mean, how, how young does it get on a U.S. farm? How young a person might, might we find working uh, here somewhere in the United States? I think some of the youngest cases that I've seen are 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, But again, it's very clandestine. Oftentimes these kids can be otherwise marginalized, for example, um, undocumented migrants or kids that are really not involved or have their parents involved in the the formal legal system or formal recognition in the United States. So sometimes it is a population that is, uh, again, otherwise marginalized. We definitely do have an evolving standard of decency on with regards to child labor, but I think that because this population or these populations can be clandestine and really hidden in plain sight, we really don't see it um, or recognize it um, as far as uh, where they're living and the the types of industries in which they're working. They're sort of hidden um, within these, uh, within these, um, I guess, dark markets or black markets um, in the United States. Now, just in doing some of the reading and research for this show, um, I would encounter the argument that, um, and we can talk about some of the sectors where this is not true, but that the world is making progress in removing child labor. Uh, The Child Labor Coalition says there's 94 million fewer child laborers today than there were 16 years ago. Um, First of all, I mean, do do you think that's probably the case? Well, one of the things that I've encountered as a social science research analyst is that the data that's out there is really limited and not necessarily uh, not necessarily reliable or valid. Just because of the clandestine nature of the crime, it's very difficult to measure, and it is very difficult to measure pro- progress, much less the demographics of the populations who are being exploited. It very well might may be the case, but because of the rarity um, in which we see these cases come through the criminal justice system, it's, it's very difficult to measure. So I really wouldn't necessarily, necessarily hang my hat on those statistics. 
Yeah. Well, and maybe we could talk about this, too, that um, trying to uh, to learn more about it can be difficult because uh, nobody on site, nobody in the country where you are, except reformers, has any interest in showing it to you. Showing it to you. So I know that you were in India, correct, uh, trying to yeah. see a little bit more about how much child labor there was going there was going on in 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 the textile or clothing industry. Um, and it seemed as though maybe you were shown some things that people wanted you to see. Yes. Well, ostensibly, I think that when you're going through these different industries, you're shown, I guess, a, a corporate uh, responsibility face um, to, to the organization. So um, I guess saving face in the sense that the, the workers are empowered, they're, um, they're receiving a, a livable wage, they're treated fairly, but um, behind the scenes, you really don't see how the long hours that these workers are being um, forced to engage in, the fact that they might be in, in debt bondage, um, they might have their wages withheld or pay, not paid any wages whatsoever, have their food withheld. Um, you really aren't shown that. And it is something that is definitely hidden because, because um, companies are starting to try to demand um, more responsibility with their subcontractors and with their raw materials so that there is an incentive to further hide these exploitive practices. But it's something that uh, involves, um, in order to identify it, really intense and in-depth investigation, trauma-informed investigation um, that's very timely, uh, or time-consuming rather, and it is um, it's still, we're, we're still trying to identify the questions to ask and how to really have an evidence-based intervention for, for measuring this phenomenon. But, I mean, just to put it in really sort of uh, lay, layperson's terms, sure. you were shown one thing during the day and found another thing oh, at night, right? Absolutely, yes. So I was going on tours of these different um, facilities, um, creating textiles, rugs, um, gems, and I was shown, I guess, again, I was shown a, a piece of the organization, but not the organization as a whole. And ostensibly, it seemed like these, these workers were well cared for. It wasn't until later that evening that I saw that there were younger workers than, than were previously shown, that they were all lined up and sort of um, being fed, rationed um, meals. And it, it didn't, uh, it didn't, um, that all, all of that uh, detail didn't convey earlier when I was shown the, the organization. Um, at first blush. All right. So um, we're going to be taking a break pretty soon sure. here, but um, but maybe just we could squeeze this in. This is like a five-hour conversation. We're going to do it in 60 seconds. But, I mean, <laughs> we're having a big conversation these days about workplace sexual harassment. I assume for a child in, in, in a pretty enclosed situation, they are fair game or unfair game for all kinds of sexual predation. Uh, I definitely seen, have seen that children are treated as a marginalized population within the workforce, and that does include uh, sexual exploitation as well as labor exploitation. So you definitely hit the nail on the head there. And they're, I guess, less inclined to report that information because of things like child sexual abuse accommodation syndrome and the higher proclivity to engage in a trauma bonding with their offender. So um, those type of things do exist, and it, it, what, it's one of the things that makes these types of crimes that much more um, heart-wrenching to hear about. All right. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to have more of Kimberly uh, on the other side of that break. Um, we're going to talk to you a little bit about the chocolate bars you might be consuming uh, and how they might, might have gotten to be chocolate bars in the first place. So stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, yes, 
There is something a little perverse about our decision to talk about child labor here in the middle of the Christmas season. But we also think it's the kind of thing you really should think about in the middle of the Christmas season. Uh, and if you if you like that about us, maybe you'll consider consider supporting this radio station. Nice people will now ask you to do that, including I think our own producer Betsy Kaplan. So do what Betsy, Betsy Kaplan says. That's what I do, and it works. <laughs> All right. We're talking about child labor. Um, we're back. Uh, joining us still is a Kimberly uh, Millman Orozco, a research, research scientist, expert in human trafficking, the author of several books, including Hidden in Plain Sight, America's Slaves of the New Millennium. Uh, we're going to go uh, to the whole subject of chocolate. You're going to eat some chocolate this Christmas. Chances are. Um, so, Kimberly, for a long time, uh, and by a long time, I, I, I think I mean sort of since the late 20th century, we've known that uh, in these uh, chocolate-producing or cocoa-producing African countries, notably the Ivory Coast or Cote d'Ivoire, um, that children are not merely child laborers. They are, uh, in all senses of the word, child slaves, right? They're, they're sold. Absolutely. Or they're deceived or defrauded into leaving their home country, for example, a neighboring country like Burkina Faso, and going to the Ivory Coast thinking that they're going to be making a lot of money to send back to their family and being able to have a sustainable income only to find themselves literally uh, enslaved, being beaten and forced to work um, long hours for no pay um, and very meager uh, food rations. Um, So essentially it is absolutely slavery. Um, give us a sense. Let's put a human face on this. Uh, uh, one person that you've written about, I believe his name, Drissa. Tell us about uh, Drissa. So he left his village in Mali to look for work in the, the Ivory Coast. Um, upon arriving, um, he was promised, uh, given false promises for uh, a wonderful job. Essentially, the recruiter told him, with all the money you'll make, you can buy a bicycle, clothes, and food for your family. And that was pretty much just promising the world to Drissa. Um, Once he arrived, he was forced to work 18 hours a day alongside 17 other boys who were as young as 10 years old. Each night, they were locked into a small room with over a dozen other boys and one tin can to share as a toilet. And he was never compensated for his work, only provided with a little food and water needed to keep alive. Um, At one time, he attempted to run away, but the slaveholder caught him, and he was savagely beaten, causing his um, skin to to split to such a degree that he still has scars on his back to this day. And he was enslaved in the um, cocoa industry until he was liberated by uh, nonprofit organizations and those working in the field in the Ivory Coast to um, help free child slaves. So a lot of this chocolate winds up in the chocolate bars of Nestle's, Hershey's, Mars, companies that we we know very well, just as, you know, we were talking about uh, Indian uh, textiles, uh, sweatshops whose products wind up, you know, on the shelves of The Gap, Walmart, H&M, Tommy Hilfiger, you name it. So, and, and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people listening right now who, and we should say that a lot of the attempts to sort of do something about this at the governmental level don't seem to work that well. We had the Harkin-Engel protocol with chocolate, mm-hmm. which didn't seem to really put a dent in, in this problem very much. I mean, the, the cocoa-chocolate problem is getting worse, not better. Um, so what can, what can a consumer do? I mean, does, do the, does the Gap even know whether there's child labor involved in some sweater they're selling? 
Well, I, I think that a lot of these organizations and companies, they they are uh, aware of it to some degree. I think that they employ best practices to try to reduce it. But again, there's very little research to suggest what effect these best practices have on actually reducing the, the incidence of child labor, child uh, trafficking within their production line. Um, so I think that there's definitely more research that's needed to look at what are actual evidence-based practices and what is the impact that they have on the industry. Another thing that responsible consumers can do um, is you know, just do a little research to see um, who's producing the, the raw materials for that business. And there are plenty of um, small businesses that definitely do advertise single-origin bean-to-bar chocolate, where they're saying, we know every step of the way who is sourcing this material, where it comes from, you know, who's picking the cocoa pods, how it's made. Um, and we have faces and names to put on the, the people that are producing these raw materials. But oftentimes what we see, um, in order to implement that degree of oversight, it does increase the cost. So, for example, in my book, I talk about Eskinosi, um, who has bean-to-bar chocolate, but it's about uh, $5 for one 1.7-ounce bar, which, which is much more expensive than some of the larger chocolate manufacturers. Right. I even I found a phone app uh, called Sweat and Toil, uh, it's actually put out by um, uh, the International Labor Organization, which, I mean, you can have on your phone and it, it can, you know, give you some kind of information if you really want to be super conscientious about this. I don't know, you know, how perfect anything like that can be. Um, but, um, all right, I think we need to take a little break here. Unfortunately, I'm kind of under the gun because of, uh, of pledge drives. We're going to come back with more of Kimberly, uh, and we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about, okay, let's say you decided you weren't ever going to buy anything that you thought was made by uh, child labor. Would that fix the problem, or is the problem more layered even than that? Now that we've ruined your holidays, today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Alec Guinness. On tomorrow's show, Gino Ariema unburdens his soul to Colin. And now, back to Colin. All right, this is the uh, final segment of our show about child labor. Uh, still with us, Kimberly Millman Orozco, uh, author of, among other things, Hidden in Plain Sight, America's Slaves of the New Millennium. Joining us now also, Benjamin Powell, senior fellow at the Independent Institute, director of the Free Market Institute, and a professor of economics at Texas Tech. He's the author of Out of Poverty, Sweatshops in the Global Economy. So, Benjamin Powell, um, in one of your uh, papers, you introduce us to an 11-year-old, I believe, named Harissa, I think, in Bangladesh, who's working in a factory that produces Hanes underwear. She's got a job uh, where she works on her feet eight hours a day, six hours a day, sometimes six days a week, excuse me. Sometimes she falls asleep on her feet. She's got a job snipping uh, uh, stray threads off the uh, underwear, 150 pairs an hour, I think. I'm trying to do this from memory. But, um, the, um, but you make the argument that as horrible as that sounds, eliminating that job, getting her out of that job, wouldn't necessarily be the best thing for her. No, exactly right. Because, listen, children don't work because their parents are evil or stupid. Children work when families are desperately poor and unable to feed, clothe, and shelter their family without the meager income that a child can add. If we do not buy products that they make, that does not end the child and their family's poverty. It only takes away 
what that family viewed as their least bad option for dealing with their dire circumstances. So would the idea be, I mean, in other words, one of the problems is I think there's 57 million people, 57 children in the world who don't go to school at all. Um, So I assume what we're saying is if you don't build up the corresponding infrastructure um, and you simply take the jobs away, you're going to force children towards even possibly worse alternatives, not to a school that doesn't exist for them anyway. Right, and it's not just about school, because the fact of the matter is most child labor around the world in poorer countries is not in manufacturing for export to the United States. Most children who work, work in agriculture, often subsistence agriculture, products that don't make it into our country, or domestic services, which really means household-type services in these countries. When we boycott products or cease to buy them because there's child labor involved, the children don't just go to school, they switch to other forms of child employment, where it's often, in the case of agriculture, more dangerous for them, uh, but in the case of both sectors, less remunerative, and where they probably build fewer skills that would lead to uh, better employment or higher incomes later. So, um, Kimberly Millman Orozco, I'm wondering what you think about this argument that that in many cases, without the other thing, the the economic incentives, uh, getting rid of some of these jobs actually introduces a worse set of evils. How do you respond to that? Well, I think it's very important not to confound child labor with child labor trafficking. Uh, The latter is defined as the use of force, fraud, coercion, or deception for the purpose of exploitation or the exploitation of any child under the age of 18. Now, if a child is working, and it might offend um, Western sensibilities if they're working in their young age or they're working relatively long hours, but they're making income that is um, helping the sustenance for their family, that's one thing. But if they're being exploited, not paid at all, being beaten, being raped, being sexually abused, I think that's quite another. And I think that combating child labor trafficking is imperative. It's possible. And I don't think it has the, the same effect as um, being suggested for the combating the child labor industry as a whole. Benjamin Powell, that sounds like a useful distinction to me. Yes, I think we should be eliminating fraud and things like that that come with the, the child trafficking and that we have to be very specific in what our objectives and objections are like this and not put blanket ones across the use of child labor as a, as a whole. Um, although, once again, you know, exploited is kind of a complicated term. I mean, there might be children who are, uh, Benjamin Powell, working against their will, but their families maybe want them, need them uh, to work in a bad condition. So, I mean, that's a little bit different from a, people who are essentially kidnapped or, or, or being trafficked as essentially slaves. But I don't know. I feel like there might be a complicated uh, area where it's a little bit difficult to distinguish between the two. I'd like to hear from both of you, but maybe, Benjamin, you can start. Well, listen, I think in all con- all philosophical uh, dealings with children versus adults get a little bit complicated, period, uh, no matter what issue that we're talking about. But I think for the most part, when we look, the vast majority of child labor in the world is a place where the child is making themselves better off and their family better off than they would be otherwise in the best interest of the overall family unit. Uh, and that's different from these other, and, they, and often, by the way, I don't want to romanticize this at all. The children, much like they're adults in these situations, often have very lousy working conditions, very low pay by our standards, but it's still a step up relative to getting thrown into those 
even worse alternatives and sectors. And really, the way that we see child labor disappear in a beneficial way is as incomes go up, families dramatically take children out of the workforce. The best studies I've seen on this were a pair of Dartmouth economists who tracked individual families across the decade of the 1990s in Vietnam, where there was a lot of economic growth. And it wasn't just a general relationship between rising incomes and lower child labor. All the action was around extreme poverty lines. Once a family could afford enough calories to feed every family member about a 2,000 calorie or so diet, big drop in child labor rates. Again, right around Vietnam's official poverty line, another big drop. What we want to see is kids getting out of the labor force as the, the incomes rise and the parents don't need that income to help the family. Then we naturally see them going more to school. On the other end, Kimberly, you're sort of saying, but we could still make a bright line. I don't, I don't, you know, go, going back to an earlier part of our conversation, it's very hard to count noses in these situations. But if there's 152 million children who are who are working in what we would call child labor, how many of them would fall into the category you're talking about? Children who are basically being forced to work in something that closely resembles slavery. Well, I think at this point, it's impossible to, to to estimate that number with any amount of reliability or validity. I think that um, with regards to the definition of exploitation, as you had alluded to earlier, I think experts have definitely agreed on the fact that human trafficking, the definition of what constitutes trafficking and exploitation is a strikingly rigor-free zone um, when it comes to the definition and the legal per- parameters. So we are still trying to carve out what rises to that level of exploitation. However, I think it's also important to note that um, I, I, I disagree with uh, with Benjamin, I believe, um, on, on the sense that he has uh, cited as saying that countries that became rich, rich child labor has disappeared. Um, I don't agree with that. And I think that it, it has definitely um, been reduced, but it, it still exists and it's we're, more clandestine than it once was. We're going to have to stop there. Alas, thanks to both of you for appearing on this show. Thanks to Josh Nalea for producing. We'll be back tomorrow with that conversation with Gino Ariema. And please support this station and this show when the nice people ask you to, which they're about to do right now.